That's a great prayer even for big kids uh, like many of us. This has been a very unusual and tough year, I think, for every one of us in one way or another, 2021. And I think all of us need some hope and some light, maybe more than ever uh, in this season in our life. I want to look at a passage on this Christmas uh, Eve afternoon. We're going to look at one of the gospel narratives about the birth of Jesus. If you have a copy of the Bible, it's in John chapter 1. But John chapter 1, my text, is um, different than the other gospel accounts. We typically, ones we're most familiar with, let's say Luke and Matthew, they're going to talk about um, a baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But the Gospel of John, this also is it, let's call it a birth narrative, does not begin 2,000 years ago in a town called Bethlehem. It begins this narrative of the birth of Jesus before time ever even began when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together devised a plan for the salvation of the world. So if you have a copy of the Bible, we'll take a look at it. Oh, John chapter 1, open it up. You can uh, use the ones in front of your uh, legs or your kneecaps or your phone as well. This account does not focus so much on what happened. Okay, we'll read this right now, John 1. Not so much on what happened. In the verses I read, you're not going to hear about a, um, a manger. You're not going to hear about a young, humble couple. You're not going to hear about you know, um, Judea or, or Bethlehem. You're not going to hear about a virgin birth. It's not going to talk about what happened. It's going to talk about why it happened. John chapter 1, it is about the birth of Jesus, But John decides, different than his uh, other uh, gospel writers, to answer the question, why did Jesus come? The copy, as I said, John 1, we'll read the first 14 verses in a message titled, True Light. True Light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth the birth of jesus why did it happen why did it happen three things this passage tells us at least three but i'm going to highlight tonight jesus came to identify with humanity jesus christ 
The Son of God and God the Son, this passage says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. In verse 17, he gets a name, Jesus, but he was with God in the beginning. Okay? So Jesus did, Jesus had an earthly beginning in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus eventually took on skin and bones in Bethlehem, but he was part of the Godhead for all of eternity. Okay? But Jesus came in this moment, we're celebrating it, the Christmas story, to identify with humanity. The word uh, phrase, I should say in verse 14, the word became flesh, is one of the most significant statements in all of the Bible, the word became flesh, and it's the very heart of the Christian gospel. Think about this. Jesus has always been, as I just said, one with the Father in divinity, always, He didn't become God when he came into the world. He's always been one with God in divinity, but only in a manger in Bethlehem did he become one with us in humanity. Something fundamentally changed. John uses this word. The word became flesh. Now, it's a little, doesn't really um, stand out to us, but it was meant to stand out. It's meant to be, I'm talking about the word flesh, it's meant to be a startling word. And it would be especially so in the Greek language when this was first written. There's three words that he could use, and they're used throughout the New Testament. One is the word for body. Why wouldn't you use that? And the word became a body, or the word, the most obvious would be man. The word became a man. Or a human. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word, the Greek word is sarx, the word flesh. And what the word flesh means is it's talking about the human existence in all of its frailty and weakness. It's talking about the whole person. It's beyond skin and bones. That would be body. Flesh means when it's used in the New Testament. It's talking about the whole person. And what, it, what, the, what John is saying, a good paraphrase of this might be this. The word was made vulnerable. The word was made hurtable. The word was made even killable. Okay? That's what John is trying to say. It would have been very shocking in his day to think that God or someone who was called God or claimed to be God would come into frail, vulnerable humanity. But that's what happened in a manger in Bethlehem. And this verse... And not just this verse, John 1.14, but this verse in much of the New Testament as it explores and unpacks this truth says that this act of self-humbling on the part of God, listen carefully, is irreversible. Okay? It's irreversible. This was an act. Jesus, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word eventually gets a name, Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. He's been God forever. That's not new. But when God, in the providence, as I said, before time ever happened, right? In the beginning, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, as best as we can understand, they devised a plan of salvation, And that plan of salvation took a long time to materialize, to mature. But in this moment that we are celebrating Christmas, a baby in a manger, it wasn't just a a nice thing. It wasn't a good idea. It wasn't one of the plans. It wasn't sort of a, you know, um, slip in and slip out. When God became man, it was self-humbling. Oh, my goodness. God in heaven who needs nothing 
who has everything, perfect unity, perfect power, perfect wisdom, does not need mankind but comes in and enters the human story for a purpose and he takes on a self-humbling act, right? He didn't become, you know, the son of Herod, you know, or the son of some great corporate person or the son of a king. He came into, on purpose, a small town of Bethlehem. His parents were very poor. They were teenagers. This was all part of God's purpose, a self-humbling act. But what the Bible tells us, Jesus came to identify with humanity, is this is forever and ever. It's irreversible, which means eternally, right? Eternally, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay? This is what, this is what dis- distinguishes Christianity, whatever your background or beliefs are, from every other religion that has ever existed. Right? All religions have gods that have power. All religions have gods that have wisdom. All religions, many of them, talk about the main ones, have a God who has some kind of ethic, but not a God who decides to condescend, a God who decides to self-humble, a God who decides to say, listen, I love the people of the world, but I gotta do more than just, you know, create, just mention some fiat, write, sign my name on something. If I'm gonna save the world, I'm gonna have to get inside their shoes, get inside their skin, not just for a time, but forever and ever. God with us, okay? God with us. Jesus Christ came to identify with humanity. He is forever and ever Emmanuel. He identified with the best in us in the innocence of a baby, right? We often say that, the innocence of a baby. But you know he would go on to identify with the worst in us in a criminal's cross, both acts of identification. But once you come to him, that's what this whole passage is really kind of, John's using the birth narrative of Jesus. The word became flesh. It's his high-minded or theologically rich or bigger, broader way of talking about the birth of Jesus. The word became flesh. But really, he has a very practical purpose here, right? To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. Once you come to know him as Savior, if you do, this is my point, so it's an encouragement to every person in this room and listening to me, especially if you are a Christian. He is a merciful, he's not only a Savior, he's a merciful, faithful high priest who is ever ready to give you grace and help in time of need. Not just because he's powerful, not just because he's wonderful, because he walked in your shoes. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. What do you mean, Rob, that Jesus Christ came to identify with humanity? The writer of Hebrews will say this. Now about the risen Jesus. For we do not have a high priest. Jesus has a, he's called a high priest. That is to say, he's someone that we go to every day. We pray to him. He answers our prayers. He's, he's, he's taken on. He's become the ultimate priest, not just for a group of people, but for all the world. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Think about that. I have people say to me all the time for various reasons, I'm just one guy, I'm a pastor. Rob, I'm gonna tell you this, but you've never had this. 
You've never had a child. You've never, you've never gone through this kind of cancer. You've never experienced a, a, a bankruptcy. And many of those things are true and are true of me. I can have sympathy. I can have compassion. You can have sympathy. You can have compassion. We should do that and pray for the people in our lives, of course. But what it says here about Jesus, why did he do it? Because could, God could do whatever he wants to. He could wave a wand and, and create forgiveness for all people. We're not, God is not limited by our imagination. But he decided to identify with humanity, not just to save them later through the cross and through the atonement of the cross, paying the price for our sin, but he wants to be a real person in your life today. Like this video you just saw, Right? You got needs in your life. He is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Excuse me, he's able to, unable. We do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way. Now, I almost wouldn't believe it if I didn't read it. But if I believe the Bible, this is what it says. Jesus Christ was tempted to steal, to cheat, to um, look at people the wrong way to use people, to abuse people, to be self. He, he was tempted in every single way that you are tempted, that I'm tempted, yet he did it without sin. Then, therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. This is what Christmas is about. Oh my goodness, I'm not praying to a, 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 a stone object. I'm not praying to some idea, some big force that's out there. I'm praying to a God not only made me, verse three, Everything about me. Jesus would say, God knows the very hairs on your head. He's talking, it's, it's a phrase, but he's saying, listen, God knows everything about you. Psalm 139, read it sometime. He knows your thoughts before you have them. Where you're sitting down, when you're standing up, he knows everything about you, every struggle, every difficulty. He knows the things that you're not even worried about that you're gonna be worried about. And you can come to him and you find grace and help in time of need. That's what Christmas is about. The self-humbling act of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ has always been God. Don't ask me to explain this theologically later. Don't send me the email, okay? Because <laughs> uh, I'm gonna forward it to someone who's smarter than me. But let me tell you something. Something changed forever in Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. Explain that to me, I can't. But he self-humbled himself he came in, the word became vulnerable, the word became hurtable, the word became killable. And he understands humanity in a way that he didn't understand it before. That's what this passage tells me. But better than understand it, I want to take advantage of it. You have a God if you know him. I have a God and I know him who, I, who is identified with me. Second thing this passage tells us, why did Jesus come? He came to overcome the darkness of the world, okay? That doesn't say that in Luke's version. It says it indirectly. Herod wanted to kill him. Jesus has to go here. They're on the run. I think it's the Matthew's version, right? Can you imagine this young couple? They're being chased. They kill all the kids in Bethlehem. So that we know it narratively through that way. But John's telling you something, kind of getting rid of the narrative details, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light, which gets the name Jesus in verse 9, the light shines in the darkness, he's talking about the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. He didn't say the light came and eliminated the darkness. That's the second coming sermon, not today, okay? 
Not the, the, the ultimately, the, 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 uh, the world will be set to rights. That's called the second coming. When Jesus doesn't come as a humble baby, he comes as a king. But the first time, he's coming to deal with a different kind of darkness. Now listen to the, quickly the parallel. What is John doing here? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God in verse 5 and 9. He gets to this thing of light. He's doing a very conscious thing that many of you may see, some of you don't, depending on your background. But certainly, if you were a first reader, you'd see this. Because the New Testament didn't exist yet. If you went to church in the, in the early days, all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written. This letter was being carried around. It was being written. But what John's doing is he's writing almost a one-for-one parallel of the opening words of the Bible. Okay, There's no mystery here. In the beginning... Those three words begin the Bible. It begins this Bible, but it began their Bible as well. In those three words are only one Hebrew word translated. And that one Hebrew word that's translated in the beginning, in the very first paragraph in your Bible, is the word, Hebrew word translated Genesis. And the very first command, once the opening words are said, it's very similar to this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formed and it was void and darkness covered the face of the earth. Darkness. But the very first command being mimicked here, Genesis 1-3, is this. Let there be light. And what John is saying is this too, the birth of Jesus Christ, this too is a Genesis. But here... The word of God isn't just this verbal performative thing from the sky who says this and things happen. Now the word of God is a person. And this person, verse 9, brings a spiritual light. He's the true light. This person brings a spiritual light. What does it mean? It's the true meaning of life. He, Jesus Christ, in a manner of speaking, is living, breathing, animated, true reality. That's what the Bible says, okay? It's the true light. It's the true meaning of life. It's a new quality of life. In him was life, and that life is the light of mankind. And that quality of life is talked about in this gospel in the New Testament as eternal life. Let me say something very quickly. Eternal life is not the thing that happens the day you die. It's not a time word. It's a quality of life. It's the quality of life of God. And that life, that quality of life, that spiritual life can be yours and mine today. Okay? Today. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, what is the darkness as I said, the, dark, the, the darkness of the world at large, I'm talking about, you know, you might say, God, you know, if, if Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with the darkness, he's not doing a very good job in the sense of, I'm talking about societal darkness. I'm talking about the conflicts in our world, all the difficulties. But see, those are the conflicts that are going to be set straight at the second coming. At the first coming, what John is saying here, is God wanted to deal first through the identification of humanity, through dying on a cross, through coming into people's life, to deal with the darkness that's in us, not that's out there. He wants to deal with the darkness that's in us and the dark times that we have. Okay, He's the true light that lights up everyone or gives light to everyone coming in to 
the world. Okay? The question is whether or not you acknowledge the light. Okay? Because a lot of people didn't. John's saying a point, even in his day. He, the true light came into the world. The true reality came into the world. Truth, reality, light came into the world. But many people said, no, thank you. So this is the question the passage asks. Are you, do you acknowledge the light? Have you responded to the light? Are you responding to the light? I had a conversation very recently with members of my family. I have five siblings, three of them. I was with three of them. And they're all older than me. And they told me a story that I'd never heard before. You know, families are funny that way, right? You know, you, you, they, they told me this story. and It was, it was a story that um, I think I'd heard part of it, but I never heard this story. And here's the story very quickly. My, my uh, dad died when I was a, a child. I was only four months old, but, you know, it only goes up to about seven. So we all lost our dad when we were young. Now, I knew that, of course. That wasn't the story. But the story was four days after that happened, there was a knock on the door. And the knock on the door was someone from my dad's company repossessing the car. Not for any negative reason, but he was a salesman. They were taking the car back. That was normal. That was fine. But the thing that was the, the newsworthy was that was the family car. So my mother, as the story goes, I'd always heard the car part, but what she did was she had to put her kids, all six of them, or at least maybe the ones that couldn't walk, into this radio flyer, uh, 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 we, uh, whatever you call it, wagon, and, and take through a couple streets, maybe a mile or so, to go to the grocery store, Star Market, and then come back. Now, that went on, so the story was told. Four months old, what do I know? That story went on until about maybe a month or two later, they got another knock at the door, and the other knock at the door was um, a college friend of my dad's. I do know this man. And he came and said, listen, he came in a brand new, beautiful station wagon. And he turned the keys over to my mother and said, listen, me and some friends, college friends, we got into this situation, of course. Their friend had just died young and gave this to my mother. Okay? And beautiful story. Now, I, I kind of believed some of it. When they got to this red wagon part, I mean, can you see some lady taking her six little kids? I thought, this is a little too movie of the week, you know, for me. I couldn't believe it. And my two older siblings, there was three, but the two older ones said, no, it's exactly what happened. And then my closest to me sibling, my sister said, she was too young to have appreciated it. She might have been three or so, four maybe. She said, it did happen because I interviewed our mother before she passed away in college. I mean, years and years ago, I had a first-hand interview and I, I, it's a college project, I'll send it to you. She sends it to me <laughs> later that night. This was very, very recently. And I read that story and I said, Wow, it was first-hand account. My mother told the story that matched up with the story they told me. But what was even more interesting than that was she sent me the whole project electronically, but at the, after that story, there was one more story. I didn't even know it was there. She wasn't even asking me to read it. Maybe she thought I knew it, and it was just two pages, and it was, a, it was another interview with my mother about the day my father died. I'd never heard it. It was fast. I, she didn't even tell me about it. I'm reading it. And it was, you know, uh, uh, she, my mother's home. She's got six kids. Her, you know, the phone rings. It's my dad. He's at his office. He says, I'm not feeling so hot. She says, well, you know, uh, why don't you come home? He doesn't. He finally does come home. I'm not feeling so hot. Why don't you call the doctor? He calls the doctor. The doctor says, take some antacid. He does. He's still not feeling good. Pain in his chest. Pain in his arm. Well, you better go to the hospital. So my grandmother comes over, six little kids getting ready for dinner. My mother and my father go to the hospital. And they go to the hospital, 
and they take him in. The doctor says after, you know, half hour, hour or so, comes out and says, Mrs. Catalani, he's doing fine. He's putting his shirt back on. I think we're going to be okay. It was something, something. She waits a little bit more. She finally goes to the, she's heading up to the door. All of a sudden, you hear the noises and the things you hear in hospital rooms. People are coming in and out. A nurse slams the door, almost hits my mother. She goes back and sits down. 20 minutes later, the doctor comes out and says, we're so sorry, he, he didn't make it. Right? He didn't make it. She thought it was indigestion. Now, attached to that story, I never read the story. I never heard those details, was this photograph, okay, which was appended to the, to, to the story, which was taken around that time. My mother, when that happened, was 34 years old. Six kids. Mrs. Catalani, he's not going to make it. Now, of course I knew the general outline of my father's death, but reading this story and, get, and looking at this picture, here's what I thought. This had to be a very dark time for this family. Can you imagine being a woman who has six kids? The youngest is four months old. The oldest is seven and a half. And your husband just dropped dead. Talk about a dark time. Talk about, I was thinking about this, what an inauspicious beginning for me. Now, I didn't know any of this, but can you imagine? But as I thought about it, I realized in a stronger way when I took some time to think about that story, when I took some time to look at that picture, what God had done in the next 18 years of my life, how God had been giving me light, had been lighting my path through providential events, through um, exceptional, um, gracious gifts, most importantly through people and conversations along the line, through my adolescence, who said to me, encouraged me, challenged me, pointed me to consider Jesus Christ. And finally, after a number of those conversations at 18 years old, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He's the true light that gives light to everyone. He's coming to shine in the darkness. But we know that not everyone says yes. The question is, are you paying attention to the light? Here's my point of this whole sermon. I think if you stop to think about it, and I hope you do, right? I hope you do. You will see that he's been in your life too, right? He's been in your life too. This is how God works. John 8, 12 will say this. Jesus says, I'm the light, not of Bethlehem, not of Judea. I'm the light of the world. There's nowhere where he is not the light. Whether or not you acknowledge it. Listen, I didn't acknowledge it for a long time, but I looked back even now and said, God, thank you that you were the true light and you continued to draw me through that light until I came to a place where I received Jesus as my Savior. Jesus came to identify with us. Jesus came to overcome the darkness of the world. Lastly, Jesus came to offer new life. It's really what this passage really gets its, its energy, right? 
Let's enough with all this theology. Let me say this about the incarnation. We're talking about the well, the incarnation is a fancy word for the um, the birth of the God of Jesus in the manger. That's a fancy word is the incarnation. God became a man through uh, Mary and Joseph in the virgin birth. It's called the incarnation. Let me say this: the incarnation doesn't save us. But the, the, the cross and the resurrection are necessary. But the incarnation, this is why we're celebrating it, is the necessary precondition. You see? Why is that? Because in the conflict between man and God, the person who's on the, the offender is me. The person who broke faith is me. I'm talking about humanity. The person who has broken faith is humanity. We are the ones on the wrong end of this relationship. But because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because I'm a sinner and because you're a sinner, if you're honest with yourself, you can't solve your own problem. So God says the only way to solve this problem is I have to come down and become one of them. You see? And as I become one of them, Jesus came to identify with humanity. Jesus came also to overcome the darkness so that you have enough light and I have enough light to be smart enough, to be wise enough to wake up and say, I want that too. Can't save yourself. One of the great ironies of this passage, one of the great ironies of this passage and I think John's meant to be an irony, is the guy who created everything, verse 3. Assuming you believe this, okay? It doesn't say, you know, Jesus was this wonderful, um, you know, divine being and he was flying over earth and said, I'll help out these poor people like you and I. We drive back by someone who's got a flat tire and we'll say, we'll help them. They're not related to me, but I'll help them. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God, Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they created everything, verse 3. Right? They created it all. So he comes to his own, right? He's not some you know, uh, uh, distant person. He's, he's the person who created everything, including you and including me. He came unto his own, and the world did not recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him in the logic of this passage? Not because of his hairstyle. They didn't recognize him because of the darkness. This is the verdict, John will say in chapter 3. This is the verdict. That light has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. So far, so good. But men, women, people, love darkness rather than light. You see, the problem isn't out there, it's in here. They didn't recognize him. He said he even came unto his own, which means the Jewish people. He came unto his own and they didn't even receive him. Jesus Christ came, most importantly, to offer life. And let me say one last thing. Kind of a misnomer, sometimes a myth. We're all God's children. It's not what this passage says. We're all God's creation. Right? Every single person that ever lived, whether they care about it or not, whether they've ever been to a church service or not, doesn't matter. All people that live, that have ever lived, were created by God. God, the agent of God here, in this case, the Son, Jesus Christ. He created everybody. In that sense, we're all God's creatures. But we would, if we were all God's children, why, oh, why would there be a, a, the whole point of this passage in the New Testament is wake up, respond, believe, right? Nobody's God's children by birth. 
We're God's creation by birth. But here's the, here's the point. Once you understand what the, what the Christmas story is about, it's not my way or the highway. It's not to jump higher and I'll love you. It says, oh my goodness, I love you so much, you can't imagine how much that I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to come down in a self-humbling way. I'm going to enter your reality. I'm going to experience your reality. And then I'm going to die for your sins. And all I'm asking you to do is open your eyes, open your heart, and receive. It has nothing to do with your background, your parents, whether or not you're a good person or not a good person or better than other people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only thing you need to do is see the light and respond. And my question tonight is this. If you haven't done that, and perhaps many of you have, but if you haven't done that, and providentially for some reason you're sitting in this room or listening to me, why, oh why, oh why would you not do it now? What in the world would keep you from receiving the greatest gift I'm not talking about the ticket to heaven. I'm talking about where the God of the universe comes inside and makes his home with you. Listen to these final words. Jesus, a couple chapters later. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Walk is a metaphor in the Bible. It may talk about live. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Okay? There's real darkness in the world. You know that. I don't need to tell you that. Darkness in your own life. You might say, well, I can do this later. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you might become children of light. Okay? So we're going to pray. Every head is bowed. If you'll do that with me, whatever your uh, uh, inclination is tonight, just do that for all of us. Every um, eyes are closed. I'm just going to give you an opportunity to do not what I say, but in a sense what this passage says. If you'd say, listen, uh, Rob, whatever your background story is, I've, I never really understood the gospel in a sense. I didn't know that God um, did all the work, that he took on my... Uh, humanity and he lived the life that I could never live remember what it says he was tempted in every ways but he didn't sin he lived the life that I couldn't live and then he died a death right it was it was a criminal's cross he died the death for the sin that he didn't commit that's the whole point he lived the life you couldn't live he died the death that he didn't deserve but that I deserve if I'm honest that you deserve this is the gospel. And he rose from the dead, having accomplished the salvation. He said, listen, all you need to do, if you, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, okay, it's belief, trust, faith, that God raised Jesus from the dead for you, then you'll be saved. So all you need to do is this, just privately, Okay? You quietly in your own heart pray this prayer in your own words or, or in mimicking these. God, thank you for sending Jesus into this world on a rescue mission of love and grace. Thank you, Lord, for his life and his death for me. 
And I pray right now, I want to receive this gift. I want to receive this life. Forgive me of my sin and send me the promised Holy Spirit that I might not only know this forgiveness in my mind, in my heart, sense it, but that I might have the power to live a new kind of life. Thank you, God, for your light, even tonight. So if every, with every head bow and, and eye closed, I'm just going to ask you this quickly. If, if you prayed that prayer and meant it, I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand wherever you are. Just slip it up and down. You don't need to keep it up. Thank you. Yes, just slip it up and down as an acknowledgement to God, to me. Thank you. Let me pray. God and Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for my friends. We love you. And I pray, Lord, that you would hear these prayers, answer these prayers, and become, Lord, the very Savior and Lord that is promised in these words and we pray in Jesus name.